Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. It's almost summer, or at least it's starting to slowly feel like that mm-hmm. outside. Um, and that means vacation plans and travel. So I was thinking about like good places mm-hmm. to visit and that might be on your list. And there's so many highly underrated places in America. Lauren, mm-hmm. what what are some of those places that you've been to? You're like, man, more people should know about this slash maybe I don't want them to know about this because it's actually awesome. <laughs> Well, it's hard being from Florida, right? Because I think everything about Florida is amazing. Oh my goodness. But the whole country knows how amazing it is, both with do, our politics. Do they? Oh, do yeah. They? I mean, especially our listeners, listeners of this show. Yeah. I will say, I think the Florida panhandle, mm. a lot of people, when they think Florida, they think Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. They even think the Keys, which, if anybody has been to the Keys, it's very interesting. But the beaches sometimes aren't as great, mm-hmm. especially towards the end, towards Key West. But the Panhandle beaches and then the beaches in northern Florida, they're so wide and they have soft sand mm. and you can really spread out. And uh, Making me want to go to the beach right now. That sounds great. I, lo- I mean, uh, I really should be a more traveled person. And I, with this job, I've seen a lot of the United States. I've been yeah. to California and U- Utah, Wyoming, lots of Texas trips, Colorado. They're all beautiful, but... No place like home, huh? I mean, I just... When I go on vacation, I really like to chill, right? When people go on vacation, they're like, I went hiking. Like, why would you why would you go somewhere to walk? <laughs> See, I think there's two different types of vacations. There's vacation where you do go to chill and there's vacation where you go mm. to adventure. Mm. And they're yeah, they're very different. They're very different. If, if are you an adventurer? Um, I I need at least one or two of those vac- mm. the, uh, like adventure style vacations every year, I feel like. Um, and there's a good, I mean, I, I hesitate sharing this, this kind of hidden gem mm. in America because I honestly don't want more people to discover mm-hmm. it because it's not very crowded and I'd like it to say that way. Um, but just exclusively for the listeners wow. of this show, Gosh. just for you guys, <laughs> there is a lake in South Carolina called Lake Jocassee. It has 11 waterfalls on it. Wow, and they have limited the um, like the uh, development around the lake. So there's only a handful of houses, mm-hmm. and there's only um, one like parking lot where people can park their boats, and then you can rent boats. So that means like it's not very crowded at all because once the parking lot's full for the day, mm-hmm. you can't get on. Once all the boats are rented for the day, that's it. Um, and there's not a lot of houses, so it's this gorgeous lake with not many people. It's big. It's beautiful. It's super deep, um, and you can just like travel around from waterfall to waterfall and hike and it's gorgeous um so if you're ever down south carolina north georgia that area great spot lake joe cassie now you know that sounds nice it is nice that sounds nice nice too you could go hike and i'll just sit on the boat yeah exactly you can you can (laughs) do whatever you like (laughs) all right well speaking of cool places our our guest today is actually from Colorado, or well, she lives in Colorado, which is a great state if you're a hiker, if you like to see the sights, very, very beautiful. Uh, but Megan Allman, she joins the show today, and she is a pro-life advocate and speaker with Life Training Institute. Megan Allman travels all over America to speak and debate about the pro-life issue, and she discusses the issue of life from like every possible angle, from the biblical perspective, from the scientific perspective, from the philosophical perspective. And I thought, you know, gosh, what a perfect person to come really have this conversation about as as we're looking at Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned 
how do we start having good conversations with our friends, with our family members, no matter their background, no matter their thoughts on the life issue? How can we be prepared to have conversations in love, but also with intelligence, with the facts? Um, So Megan comes on to share both her own kind of pro-life journey, uh, but then also give us some pointers and some tips on how we can have these conversations in love and intelligently. So let's go ahead and get to that conversation. It is my joy to welcome to the show today, Megan Allman. Megan is a pro-life advocate and speaker with Life Training Institute. Megan, thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited to be a part of this show. Thank you. Well, first, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Life Training Institute. What is your mission and what do you all do? Sure. Well, Life Training Institute is a pro-life apologetics training organization, which is kind of a mouthful for people who aren't familiar with some of those words. But um, basically, we train other people to make a reasonable case for the pro-life view. Uh, We work predominantly with young people, but we'll work with any audience, churches, um, often with pregnancy resource centers, um, even legislators around the country and beyond. And so we love what we do. And that kind of sums it up. Yeah, I love it. I was watching some of your videos this week and I love how succinct you all are. Like you just present the pro-life case very clearly. Um, so, you know, you're you're regularly speaking to hundreds of students on college campuses, places all over the United States. Um, but you haven't actually always been doing this work. You used to be a journalist before that. You were a gymnast. So how did you become this prominent speaker in the pro-life movement? Yeah, well, okay. Yep. That's quite a story, isn't it? Um, (laughs) No, I I grew up uh, really always loving, I think, just people. Um, I was an artist. I loved to write. And the subject matter for me was always people. I wanted to draw them. I wanted to hear their stories and tell their stories. If I watched a movie or read a book, I connected with a character and I wanted to learn more about that person, you know, even if they were imaginary. Um, So, That was the thing that kind of drove the whole journey. In college, I did major in journalism and with a specialty in magazines. I loved writing profiles. So I wanted to, again, study people, hear their stories, and communicate their stories to the world around me. And after I married my husband, who I met at the University of Georgia, uh, we moved back to his hometown in Noonan, Georgia, and I got a job writing in the local paper. And um, they gave me a lot of leeway for a newspaper because I was a magazine writer. So they just let me have lots of space and kind of do my thing. And I appreciated that. Um, But that's where I started telling these kinds of stories. And it was through the newspaper that this whole like 180 really occurred. I was asked to cover a local event. Uh, It was the local Pregnancy Resource Center's annual fundraising banquet because most pregnancy resource centers raise their funds for the whole year, really uh, through one major fundraising event each year. Well, this was the one in our community, and I wasn't even originally supposed to go. The girl who was supposed to go went on a date. (laughs) And so my editor sent me. And uh, the man who spoke that night at the banquet was Scott Klusendorf, who is the founder and president of Life Training Institute. And I was so taken aback, in a good way, uh, by what he was doing. And really, I think it was the apologetics. Hmm. Uh, He was up there talking about an issue, in this case, abortion, 
that is something that is so difficult to talk about well with just about anybody, and especially right now. Um, and I was watching this man going, I just feel like you could ask him anything. And even if he didn't know the answer, he would not be just, he wouldn't be shaken. There was a confidence about him and it came through this ability to tell these kinds of stories. Um, and so that, that kind of spurred this journey over the next couple of years, I went home, I started reading everything I could get my hands on that had to do with Christian apologetics. Mm. Um, and it always circled back to these questions about what it means to be human what it means to be valuable, because there's that people aspect again, um, until I found myself in a situation going, I, I've got to do something about this. And so my husband said, let's send you back to school. And mm. he's just that kind of guy. So um, I told, I'll tell all the young girls I work with, marry a man like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he saw something and he said, you could do something really special. So let's do that. Um, I did. I pursued a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And in the course of all of that, I reached out to Scott Klusendorf because I, I just really wanted to learn from him. Mm -hmm. um, and he very graciously helped me. Every time I would reach out, he would you know, answer a question or read something I had written and give me feedback um, until eventually he asked me to join the speaking team at Life Training Institute. That was 2009. And I have you know, enjoyed being mentored uh, by him since that time and all of the others that I've learned from. And um, this is what I'm doing now. So it's been quite a while. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, and I love um, that you mentioned Scott Klusendorf and hearing him and how, you know, when, when you first heard him speak, you just thought, oh, wow, this is something um, that I need to learn more about, hear more about. Um, I was a freshman in high school the first time I ever heard the name Scott Klusendorf, and I was at a Christian school at that point, and my Bible teacher played uh, just like, I think, a 20-minute video of him going through his sled argument, which I've talked about on this show, um, just laying out very clearly, okay, what, what are the differences that separate a child in the womb versus a child outside of the womb or a person? outside of the womb. Um, and he just, with that acronym, size, development, environment, uh, dependency, he just lays out so, so clearly what those differences are. And I, I think that is the beauty of, um, of his argument of, of what you all do is you just make it simple. So go ahead, if, if you would share a little bit um, about the, the argument that you say this whole abortion debate hinges upon, which is really like it comes down to this question of, you know, what does it mean to be human? So explain that a little bit more, if you would. Well, sure. Well, in, a, in an environment right now where people are talking a lot about abortion or a lot about the things rather that bump into abortion, it is important to kind of hone in on what are we really talking about when we talk about abortion? Um, and so we always bring it back to a, a very simple syllogism or basic argument. Uh, it goes something like this. Premise one is that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And when I'm speaking to a group of students or in any audience, really, no one disagrees with that one. Like mm -hmm. if they disagree with that one, I probably need to run away. Right. <laughs> we have other things to talk about. Um, but the, the second premise of this argument is that abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. And that's the one where we have work to do because that's the one that so many people disagree about. Um, but if those premises hold, then the conclusion naturally follows that abortion is wrong. Mm -hmm. That second premise, the way to back it up and to, and to really argue for it in a way that's compelling is to talk about the central question. What is the unborn? People want to know, can we kill the unborn? Well, you know, if they're not human, 
if, if having an abortion is no different than clipping a fingernail or pulling a tooth, as so many of my pro-choice friends want to tell me, um, then I can retire. Like, what are we even making a big deal of? Mm -hmm. But if the unborn are human, that's completely different. So we have to talk about that first. We answer the question, what is the unborn before we talk about anything else? And then we have an answer to that question, which you well know, Virginia, because you've heard Scott, um, and it is a scientific question. So we know that science answers the question. We could probably get into that in just a minute. Um, but we can also make a case philosophically for why human beings matter. But all of it begins with the question, what is the unborn? That's what frames the entire debate. And that's the question that most people are not talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. Such a critical question. Well, if you would go ahead and kind of go into a little bit of, okay, both what is that scientific argument and then the more philosophical argument. Absolutely. Um, well, let me back up to the question first, mm -hmm. because when I say most people aren't talking about that question right now, we're hearing all kinds of justifications for abortion. Uh, we're hearing that it's a matter of privacy, which is what the federal law says at the moment. Um, we hear that it's a matter of poverty because women can't afford to have more children. I mean, you name it. Women need to be able to pursue their education and their careers or their dreams without an unplanned pregnancy standing in the way of that. Um, if we make abortion illegal, we hear that, that women are going to possibly be harmed or even die in these awful back alley abortions. All these justifications rolling in for why abortion needs to be okay or why it needs to remain legal. But all of them are skipping that question. And the way I know that, uh, Virginia, is that I'm going to ask myself, anytime I hear a justification for abortion, what if we were talking about a toddler? Like, what if we were talking about a three-year-old right now? Because if we gave those justifications for reasons why we ought to be able to take the life of a three-year-old, it would become very obvious very quickly that something was the matter. Mm -hmm. We know that three-year-olds are human. And our question is, is the unborn human like the three-year-old? Um, so we should always ask ourselves that question. What if we were talking about a toddler here? Because if the answer is, no, we wouldn't kill a toddler for that reason, then we know that we wouldn't kill the unborn for that reason either if the unborn is human like the toddler. So anytime you're, you're in a conversation, you can think about that. But when you're back to your question, what is the unborn? Like I said, it's a scientific question. It's not a religious question. And there's a whole branch of science that has answered that question well. It is embryology, right? The study of embryos. And it tells us if we boil it down, that from the moment of conception, you and I and everyone listening, we were all living, distinct, whole human beings, from the moment that we came into existence, uh, we were alive. We fit the definition of any organism. I think we learned those things in like seventh grade, right? Like <laughs> life science class where you have to check all the boxes yeah. of what, what qualifies as an organism. Because that's what embryos do from the single-celled stage. They undergo cellular reproduction. So they grow. They turn food into energy. They respond when you mess with them. Like all of these things that, that would describe a living thing, they meet that, that requirement. The second thing is that they're distinct. So when we hear things like, oh, it's just part of the woman's body. Well, no, it's not. I mean, it's attached to its mother, but it's not part of her body like my, my leg is a part of my body. It has its own unique genetic code, and that's different from its mother's and from its father's. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, if, if you'll allow me, I, I just want to talk about this for a second because it Please. blows my mind. Um, gosh, Dr. Maureen Kondik is a, a neurobiologist. Uh, she is, I believe, at the University of Utah. And she's often asked as a biologist the question, 
Like, how do you know when one type of cell becomes a new type of cell? And she answers, well, that's easy. You know, across the board in biology, one of two things has to happen. If the cell changes in the stuff that it's made up of, like its material composition, then it's a new cell, biologically speaking. Or if it changes behavior, then it's a new cell, biologically speaking. But only one of those things has to happen. So Dr. Kondik is then often asked, well, how do you know when human life begins? And she says, well, when sperm and egg meet within 250 milliseconds, the plasma membranes of those two cells begin to merge to form this hybrid cell surface. So that egg cell actually changes in the stuff that it's made up of and becomes a brand new type of cell in less than a second. Wow. Um, that's remarkable. That and that's amazing. what the science tells us. Yeah. So it's a distinct human being and it's a whole human being. And that just says it's not part of us, like I was saying before, not like a skin cell or even like a sperm or egg cell that are both very much alive, but those cells are part of a larger organism with a specific role with regard to that organism. The embryo, even at its single-celled stage, its parts work together toward its overall function, and it goes on to do these remarkable things. And that's where Scott kind of gets into when you've heard him before. Um, he, he alludes to the philosopher Richard Stith, who talks about the difference between things that are constructed and things that develop. Hmm. We have this mindset that the embryo is somehow a constructed thing. Like you add some pieces to this clump of cells, which is language we hear pretty often, and the end product is going to be a baby. And you think about how we've gone from our terminology, you know, my grandmother would have said something like procreation, talking mm -hmm. about making babies, but we exclusively use the term reproduction, which is really industrial. Yeah. So that we have this, this mindset that these things are constructed, but they're not. From the moment we came into existence, we drove our own development from within. Um, mm. For the younger audience that's listening, this is true of them too right now. They're doing that still. Um, and for those of us who have children, we certainly see that that's happening. Um, so we could go on and on, but that, yeah. that's what the song tells us, you know, and it just is fascinating. It is fascinating. Oh, thanks for laying that out so clearly. And I think you realize when you start getting into the science and talking about it, uh, there's just so many, I think, cool, um, not only arguments, but just but truths that uh, are, you know, about human development and, and the science. And I, I love when we start to, I think, increasingly um, you know, people in America and across the world are realizing, wow, the science does back up the the uh, the truth that life begins at conception, and it's it's really neat to I think to slowly but surely begin to see more and more people awakening to that. And I'm sure you have that experience as as you travel, as you speak to young people, and you're relaying this information. I mean, are is is it pretty common that you're kind of seeing those light bulbs go off, and young people are coming up to you and saying, "Wow, you know, I've never." thought about this. What what are the reactions that you're getting as, as you travel and speak to students? Yeah, I think you nailed it, Virginia. When I'm speaking with students, they are, um, I think the science is actually one of the hardest parts of the presentation for me, um, just because, you know, any room that we go into with the numbers and what they tell us, I'm always expecting that I'm going to talk to a young woman or more than one who has experienced an abortion. Mm -hmm. And perhaps someone who, even at the age of, you know, 16, 17, 18, who didn't know what it is they were doing because they were told it's just a clump of cells. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's not, it's not a, a person yet. It's not a human yet. Um, so here I am presenting to them something entirely different as far as what the science says. So in those cases, that can be very life altering in, in a, in a different way, but in a true way that allows someone to come forward and, and have so many conversations with, with women who have kind of kept this inside of themselves and gone, I did not know until this moment. Um, but they're grateful. They're not angry with me or mad or anything like that. It's, it's different. It kind of allowed the door to be open to talk about it. Um, with many students who, whether they were undecided on the issue or already pro-life, it is, it's like, it, it, they're so receptive because they're going, these are things that, that are fascinating to me and that I can use. I can take this and I can talk about it. Yeah. Um, and so I think the reactions probably run the gamut, but yes, many, many light bulb moments. Although so many will say, well, any, anyone who's informed on the issue knows what the science says, um, which may or may not be true entirely, but <laughs> I think it's important that we still talk about it just for these reasons. Yeah. What's one of the most common questions that you'll get from students when you speak with them? Um, I get a lot of questions about difficult situations, hmm. um, difficult circumstances. And those, again, there, there's a whole spectrum of those. I don't think there's ever an environment that I'm in where I don't get asked about what about women who are raped? Yeah. Um, which is just hard to say even. Um, or what about if, if the pregnancy is a threat to the mother's life? Um, you know, these, these students are, they're, they're taking these things seriously. Mm -hmm. They're presented with a lot of information just given the generation that they are and, and what they have available to them through even just smartphone technology. Um, so they've, they're thinking about it a lot more than probably we give them credit for. <laughs> um, but a lot of their objections are, rightly on the side of compassion. Yeah. They want to know, how do we handle this? If what you're saying is true, and these are really human beings deserving of our protection, then how do we handle these tough things? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd love for you to share how you respond to those questions and kind of explain maybe some tools for how we can to be responding to questions like those in our own personal conversations and talking to our friends about the life issue. Um, because as, as we know, there's a case um, that the Supreme Court has heard arguments for called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. That case could overturn Roe v. Wade, which will send abortion law back to states to decide. We're going to find out some point this summer what the Supreme Court's decision is on that case. Um, but in, in all likelihood, when that ruling comes down, we're, we're all going to be having conversations with friends, with family members about the life issue. Um, and, you know, we're not always going to agree with the people that we're talking to. So what, what would be some wisdom, some guidance about how we can have conversations, both with knowledge and intelligence, but also with love and compassion? Yeah, let me jump in with two things. And then we can address those specific topics if you want to, uh, as far as the questions that I get asked often. But yeah. um, one thing we have to remember about the issue, because I think you're right, Virginia, if this goes the way we think that it's going to, as far as the Supreme Court ruling, we all have to be apologists. Mm. Uh, we all have to be ready to make a reasonable case. And one of the things that's going to affect is our posture. Um, I think that abortion, unlike many, many other moral issues that are out there, is treated differently. Um, I think it's treated much more subjectively than, than it is like a real wrong uh, or a real right or wrong. Abortion is framed as a matter of preference. 
Um, and you, I mean, we can look at past debates. Gosh, I'm remembering off the top of my head in 2012, the vice presidential debate that year. And I only bring that one up because you can still go find it on YouTube and watch the last few minutes um, where the moderator had two Catholic candidates in front of her, which was historic. But she said almost exactly this. She said, gentlemen, I want to know how your religion has impacted your own personal view on the issue of abortion. And you must remember this is an emotional issue, so you must speak personally. Hmm. As if to say, don't you dare claim that you're right and other people are wrong. This mm -hmm. is, I want your personal preference. Um, that's our national stage. And when we hear people, you know, we talk to people about abortion, we might hear things like, well, I would never have one, but I can't tell other women what's right and wrong for them. So it's framed this in this subjective way as if it's something that we ourselves kind of create. Like it's right for me, it might be wrong for them, and that's fine, your truth, my truth. But we don't treat other moral issues that way. Nobody's mm -hmm. talking about slavery that way. Uh, nobody's saying, oh, well, if you don't like slavery, then don't own one. That would yeah. be ludicrous, um, obviously. So abortion is a moral issue too. And I think we have to remember that when we're talking about morality, we're talking about something that's real, not just something that's imaginary or that we create for ourselves. And that kind of helps our posture because when that's the, when that's the case, then when we submit to the people in front of us that we think that we're right about the pro-life view and that people who disagree with us are respectfully wrong in their view, we hold an objective view, which means that by its very nature, it can be true or false. So you're actually standing on very humble ground when you're submitting to the person in front of you that, hey, I could be wrong about my view. I think that I'm right. And I have excellent reasons that I'd like to share with you, but I could be wrong. Hmm. That's humility. And I think oftentimes when we make those types of claims in this particular culture, we are fearful of being viewed as arrogant. Mm-hmm. And it's not arrogant, um, particularly with what's at stake. Yeah. So that's, that's huge, first of all. The second thing I think that we have to remember posture-wise in our conversations is the second aspect of the argument. You talked about SLED a few minutes ago. But the thing that SLED, um, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, uh, this comes from originally a philosopher named Stephen Schwartz, and he was trying to demonstrate that there's no morally relevant difference between the embryos that we all once were and the adults or young adults that we are today that would have justified killing us back then, but not now. Mm -hmm. What he's making a case for is the fact that our value as human beings, our personhood, if you will, since so many want to distinguish between mere humans and persons, which is so weird to me, <laughs> um, but our personhood um, isn't, isn't based on our abilities, our functions, our attributes, none of that. Our personhood is something that is grounded. Our value is grounded intrinsically in our shared human nature. That is the only true grounding for human equality, and it is a philosophical argument. Um, and so I think when we remember that, that guides us in all that we do. It guides us in our passion for the pro-life view and in, in fighting for the lives of those who can't speak for themselves. But it also speaks to the way that we treat others and the way that we have conversations with others, even on difficult topics like this, because that person in front of us who disagrees with us is every bit as valuable as the unborn children mm -hmm. that we're trying to protect. And if we treat them any differently, then we're the ones who need to be called on it. Yeah. That's not to say we can't be firm in our view. 
That's not to say we can't offer our reasons, but we do it as, you know, in, in first Peter three fifteen, where he tells us that we're all apologists, uh, when we are always to be ready to offer reasons for the hope that is within us, that we're to do so with gentleness and respect. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we talk to others, that guides us. So those things are big um, when it, with what's coming. Yeah. And if we are the ones who are marked by the view that we hold, that we treat everyone with the intrinsic dignity that they have, um, I think it's going to be something that makes a real difference because mm-hmm. that's not what I'm seeing right now Yeah, <laughs> on, on, on either side of the issue. I mean, yeah. just you know, so in fairness, yeah. um, you know, people listen when you're kind to them and when you come at it with compassion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I've heard that even on this show, you know, like with different people, you guys talk about these issues and it's reasonable. It's mm-hmm. not, we're going to, ta- we're going to attack the ideas because mm-hmm. life is at stake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think it's, um, it's just such a critical point in, in history and, in the whole pro-life movement and it can be so easy to get really caught up in the emotion and you know you just want to tell someone you're wrong (laughs) but to actually take the time to stop and to think about okay this is a person of value standing in front of me and and how do I communicate truths to them in a loving way and the way that makes them them think but um, of course that uh, that makes them want to learn more instead of just automatically putting up a wall. Yeah, in those one-on-one on one conversations, I think that's ultimately the most helpful thing. But you ask them their story, like why did they get to the point that they hold that view? And then you can challenge it because I think the pro-life view, if it's actually true in the way I think it is, it will stand up to the toughest scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, when we think about just the pro-life movement and where we are and the fact that okay, we we could be seeing, we are seeing a lot of laws across America change. Um, But we know that like at at the end of the day, it's not enough just to change the laws. You have to also be changing culture and um, creating a culture where life is valued at at every level, at every time, born and unborn. Um, So how do we take steps towards that? Yeah, well, I'm... I, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that first off, it is important that the laws change because the law will save lives. Mm-hmm. If the law changes, lives will be saved. We can see this through even the civil rights movement. It didn't change all hearts and minds yet, but it did save lives. Yeah. Um, and it was right and good that that happened. And so I hope that this goes that way as well. I think that the ways that we change it are as unique and as a lim- uh, as unique as we are, only limited by time and resources might be the way that I should put that. <laughs> um, basically, I think that the pro-life view is grounded in the larger Christian worldview. Um, granted, not all who are pro-life are Christians. The pro-life spectrum is full of people of all different walks of life um, and for the scientific and philosophical reasons that we laid out. But I think that if we can begin telling stories, um, and I'm going to use this kind of in a broad sense, that are grounded in this pro-life view, stories that communicate uh, the value of every single human being, um, stories that remind us of who we are and why we matter. In fact, the best stories do that. The best art, that's what it does. Mm -hmm. It tells us things that we forgot were already true. Um, So I think that in a sense, we live our lives artfully. Mm -hmm. And for for most of us, that looks like a just day-to-day faithfulness. It begins 
in our own homes, in our own closest circles, in our workplaces. And every time we contribute, I think something um, good and true and beautiful there, it makes a difference. Because of the kind of beings that we are in light of who our creator is, I think that those, even those tiny things have eternal ramifications. So um, sometimes at Summit Ministries, where I am on faculty, where my husband works, we have student conferences all summer long. And um, sometimes I speak on beauty, uh, beauty as something that is objectively real and not just something that is in the eye of the beholder and what that does to our lives. And, and one of the messages I give to students through that is that when we do these, even these small um, contributions of beauty in the day around us, if we bring repair to something that was broken, if we speak truth over something that is false, if we create something new, um, like a story or like a piece of art, every time we do that, that is our act of defiance against all that is broken. Hmm. Um, and beauty has a way of reaching people yeah. before they're aware of it. Yeah. Um, it sneaks past those sleeping dragons. I think C.S. Lewis kind of put it that way. <laughs> and um, ca- it captivates our imaginations so that we are changed from the inside out. It impacts our souls in important ways. So that was very uh, general and probably <laughs> tough, but but I, I, that's the way I think of it because there's no real silver bullet. There's just mm-hmm. opportunities in every moment of every day of what story are we telling with our lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And um, as as a journalist and you as a former journalist, I, I think there is uh, so much truth to just what you said of the power of, of stories and of relaying um, through through your own life experiences, through life experiences that you've heard about, relaying those messages. You you can't debate a story. It's this is what happened. Um, and there's such beauty and authenticity in that. Um, how can our listeners keep up with your work and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, well, absolutely. Because with those stories that we have to tell with our lives, we have all of these excellent reasons also that we can uh, provide um, in, in terms of telling people the truth. Mm-hmm. Life Training Institute, our website is prolifetraining.com. It's just all mushed together, prolifetraining, no hyphen, dot com. And if you go there, you'll find out more about our speaking team, um, about opportunities to bring us wherever. Uh, we, we, we go pretty much wherever we're invited uh, if we're able to do so. And we love to speak to student groups and youth groups and schools um, as much as possible uh, because those are the groups uh, more at risk for abortion, although abortion certainly is a, women. Women are having abortions of all ages um, that we see now. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, prolifetraining.com. You can find us on social media as well. And uh, we would love, we'd love to come out and visit. Excellent. And Megan, before we let you go, we have a question that we love to ask all of our first time guests on this show. Um, and that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? <laughs> um, I have to go with no, only because of the way the term is used uh, mm-hmm. nowadays. Feminism is, um, I guess it's an interesting word, right? It has quite a history with it. Um, but with the the waves of feminism that have come through the years, even as far back as one of my heroes, you know, Dorothy Sayers, who was asked the same question um, in the mid 20th century, she answered with, no, I don't consider myself a feminist for these, for these very reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that among the mistakes that we've seen feminism in its um, maybe secular and cultural sense make is that it tends to confuse intrinsic dignity with attributed dignity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that human beings are intrinsically valuable yeah. uh, without regard to what they're capable of doing. Uh, so I think that just has a better story to tell us than feminism, which tells us that we're valued for certain abilities or or not valued for inabilities. Um, I, I just think that's a false narrative. Mm. So good. Megan, thank you. We really, really appreciate your time. Megan Allman at Life Training Institute. We'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so you all can um, can check out more of Megan's work. Um, but we just so appreciate you being here, Megan. I appreciate you, Virginia, and the podcast. Thank you so much. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us again on Thursday for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast space, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. We'll see you Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.